I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BCG Henderson Institute. Welcome to the Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we discuss important new books and ideas in business. Today, I'm very pleased to be joined by Linda Gratton. Linda is one of the foremost thought leaders in business on the topic of the future of work. She has been named by Business Thinkers 50 as one of the top 15 business thinkers. She's a professor of management practice at London Business School, where she runs a very popular Future of Work elective. And adding to her 10 existing books, she's just written another one called, very topically, Redesigning Work, How to Transform Your Organization and Make Hybrid Work for Everybody, from MIT Press, coming out in the US in May. So welcome, Linda. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Martin. So much ink has been spilled on the future of work, the great resignation, hybrid work and, and such during the pandemic. What are you hoping to add to that, that equation with your book? Well, I think we have an opportunity to really redesign the way that we work. We knew it wasn't working perfectly before the pandemic. And I think the pandemic gave us an opportunity to both look at where people work, but also, I think importantly, when they work. So place and time is really up for grabs at the moment. And I'm watching lots of experiments taking place by large organizations right around the world. I'm really seeing how organizations go through the process of understanding jobs and people, reimagining work, thinking about modeling and testing it against issues like, is it fair? And finally, enacting it, getting managers and employees involved in the redesign. It seems to me there are all sorts of ways in which people are looking at the upheaval created by the pandemic. Some of them are saying it's nothing more than labor markets at work and a temporary deviation. So while it's vivid in the moment, essentially, there's nothing new here. Others are saying that uh, there was a pre-existing trend that the pandemic has accelerated towards new forms of working. So nothing new, but the old has been accelerated. Some people are declaring a revolution in the fundamental nature of work. And others are saying, well, actually, it's not one thing. You know, there are multiple possibilities being unlocked here. What's your interpretation of what is actually happening to work right now? I've been a professor at London Business School for 30 years. And in my view, speaking as a 67-year-old, it is the biggest chance, I think, of redesigning work. When organizations move people back to the home on the 23rd of March 2020 and are still grappling with that, that was a fundamental change in habits, in behaviors, in networks. So there's a lot in play right now. I think there's lots of experiments that are emerging. We learned new skills, particularly digital skills. We learned that actually people could you know, work wherever they wanted and still be productive. We learned that in any sector, there's sure to be at least one early mover that's doing something different. And if I was a CEO right now, I'd be wanting to find out what that was and whether it was going to be attractive to my most talented people. I was very drawn by the word in your title, design, redesigning work, suggests that it's an active thing, not a passive thing. In other words, there's no inevitable trend here. It's, it's, it's how we proactively seize the occasion. Is the question, what is the future of work, the wrong question, therefore? Well, the question is, how do we redesign work? I've been very taken by the CEO of Microsoft, who just recently said, you know, we're going to learn our way into this. And that's what I've been trying to do with my design model, is to show that actually there's no one right way. Very early on in the pandemic, a journalist said to me, what's best practice? And I said, well, I don't know, because it depends who you are and what sort of business you have and what sort of work you do. And and how you want people to show up. But if there was a best practice, it would be that you need to go through a design process. You need actually to consider particularly jobs. And Martin, the reason I'm focusing on jobs rather than people 
is you and I are experienced enough to know that any intervention that's put in now that doesn't increase productivity will be pulled out the next recession we have. And you at BCG know a great deal more about when that's going to be. So let's dig into that uh, design process, because that indeed is the center of your book. What are some of the key choices? What does the canvas of redesigning work look like? What are the key questions, choices, considerations? Well, the question that I start the book with is the question of what work is happening in your organization and how do you increase productivity? And I really look at four major elements of work. One is, is it a job that needs a lot of energy? Is it a job that needs a lot of focus, coordination, cooperation? Because what we know is that whichever one of those elements is most important really helps you to think about, well, how do I redesign work? I'm a writer and a psychologist and a professor. So for me, focus is really important. I need quite regularly to have four hours completely undisturbed. And that's actually true for lots of people in organizations. So then the question is, how do I become most focused? But if I've got a job that's much more about coordination, maybe I'm running a large project, I'm mentoring, coaching people. You know, frankly, we can do that virtually and we can do it in asynchronous time. We don't actually need to be together to do that. But there are things, particularly around cooperation and innovation, where being face-to-face, you know, preferably in a place, but perhaps on the metaverse or, or on, a, on a platform, that's got real benefits. And I think teasing all that out is going to be why design, intentional design, is going to be so important. So that's the first question I think executives should ask. How do I increase productivity? And how do I also build a way of working that engages and excites people? So before we dig into the uh, different elements of your design process, can you give us an example of a company which is approaching this process very deliberately and very scientifically? In the book, I talk about Sage, which is a software company, a technology company that's really reinventing itself to get very close to its customers. And the CEO asked one simple question. He said, as we redesign work, for me, the red line is it has to increase customer satisfaction. Whatever we do, people have to feel better about working with us and being with us. And that was the beginning of the whole of the redesign process. So when they went through the four stages that I suggest, which is you know, really understanding what's going on with jobs and people, reimagining what's possible, testing it out, modeling it, and then enacting it, they went through every single one of those processes and built a model of work which suited a lot of people doing very different jobs, but also, I think, importantly, got line managers involved so that when the whole thing was enacted, line managers knew what they were supposed to do. They felt that they had principles to hold them together, but also some sense of autonomy in terms of how they worked with their individual teams. So let's dig in some of the individual factors. Technology is a major one, of course. We've just seen that with remote working arrangements and platforms. But on a longer term, you discuss a little bit in the book, you know, where technology will augment and substitute human roles. And you have this framework, which you've changed a little bit from Judea Pearl on correlation, causation, imagination, and causality, different types of thinking operation in work. But, but broadly, how do you look at how technology will transform the future of work? Well, I think it's going to do two major things in the work that I do. Number one is it will augment what we do. And that process of augmenting is happening. I think if anything, the pandemic will accelerate that process of augmentation. And that means that 
questions of upskilling and reskilling really sit at the heart of what it is an individual wants to do as they think about their career. But I think the other aspect of technology, which is really going to influence the future of work, is our capacity to be virtually connected. You know, I'm very interested in the fact that Accenture, for example, is using the metaverse as the primary way of socializing its new, new entrance into the organization. So I think that the combination of these connective technologies plus augmentation is going to change the future of work for every one of us. What does that do to the skills market? Which types of skills become proportionately less important in that future and which become more important? Well, clearly digital skills are very, very crucial. And it's no surprise that the war for talent is particularly focused on people with digital skills. But I think stepping back from that, for me, the other interesting group of skills is what is it that humans do that machines can't? And then we're talking about two types of skills, the sort of empathic emotional skills, and then the cognitive reasoning, creative skills. And I think for me, what's really exciting about both of those is that they're things, empathy, creativity, are human aspects that machines cannot do. However, they both require high levels of human cognition and, and the rested mind. So one of the points that I'm making with the senior executives that I talk to is, you know, if you want humans to accelerate and exceed machines, they need to be rested and that means, for example, they need seven hours sleep or eight hours sleep. It means they need to have time to focus. It means they don't have to work. They shouldn't be working on Zooms all the time, which we know has a very complex effect on our brain to be constantly looking at ourselves as, as you and I are doing now. So I think that as we think about human skills, we both ask ourselves, how do people upskill and reskill? But we also ask ourselves, what sort of conditions of work are going to be important to help people demonstrate those high levels of empathic, but also creative skills? This word organization, it conjures up images of you know, humans and roles and hierarchies. But as we begin to deal with the presence of both machine cognition and human cognition, do you have any sort of vision or intuition as to what the organization of the future will look like that synergistically combines these two ways of processing information? I think that many organizations that, that you and I look at, Martin, have already moved to a much more networked process with teams and workflows. You see that, first of all, in the technology companies. You can see it in Microsoft, IBM, TCS, but you're also seeing it in the professional service firms and then also now in manufacturing. So the idea of networks where knowledge flows, where people are using machines as a mechanism of connectivity is going to be more and more emergent. And when Diana Gerson and I wrote the Harvard Business Review article, which came out in March about the manager, she wrote it as somebody who just stepped down as a senior executive at IBM with very much in mind the idea that the managerial role is one role that will be particularly augmented by machines. And, and she talked about how IBM are using nudges, and also really pulling data together and data analytics that allow a manager to really focus on the human skills that are so important in their role, which is empathy, listening, coaching, and mentoring. So I guess another block of factors that 
shape the design process for the future of work are social norms and uh, mores. So you touch on in your book equity in the redesign of work, because of course uh, not everybody benefited equally from the changes during the pandemic. And uh, also, I guess in the same camp, uh, we we can think about purpose and sustainability. So how do these sort of more ethical issues influence the design process? Well, I see that as really a very important part of the process in the sense that I think one can model what it is you want to happen. And part of what I do, and I'm sure, Martin, you're doing it within the BCG arena as well, is keeping an eye on all of these experiments, you know, the the four-day week experiment, the experiments where companies are saying you can work anywhere you want for three months a year and so on. So all of these are experimental models. But the question I think an executive has to ask is, is that equitable? Is that fair? Is it sustainable? And does it link to our purpose? And that's, that's a continuous question. Let me give you an example of that. One of the food manufacturers that we, we know pretty well has both people working in factories and people working in offices. Now, is it fair that everybody in the office is able to work from home whenever they want, but somebody in a factory has to be there every day? So asking that question, and then, as I say in the book, and I use that as an example, going through the process of conversation. So the process of conversation is, well, people in the office have flexibility around place, but you've got flexibility about time. So let's see whether we can be creative about the the scheduling of your work. The second thing is, let's talk about this as a community. So, So one of the things I've been involved with is bringing together sometimes hundreds of thousands of people to talk about what they want and also to realize that others have a different perspective about what's important. And although we can't treat everybody the same, we can treat them in a way that's fair and just. And that I think is going to be crucial because over the coming year, that's what employees are going to ask. Have I been treated fairly in in this process? Large companies perhaps not doing as well as they want on the gender equality dimension. I mean, logically, we might expect the greater freedom of time and place that the uh, pandemic has precipitated to make that equation easier. Are you seeing evidence that that's the case or or the opposite? Well, the gender question is a really important one, Martin. So, so this is where we were before the pandemic. In most companies, women were now equally represented, certainly at the point of entry and at middle management, but few women were, were equally represented in the very most senior places. And what the data showed us before the pandemic is it wasn't actually about being a woman, it was about being a mother. You know, once a mother had a child, particularly if she then went on to have two or three, the chances of her getting up to the top of the organization were reduced. So at the very beginning of the pandemic, I was extremely positive that this would begin to rebalance that because now men and women were both working from home. But as you probably know, the data show that in households where there are both men and women working, the women still, even if she gets paid more than the man, does a great deal more domestic labor. And more importantly, she does the sort of domestic labor, which is time constrained, for example, some of the administrative work, whereas the guy does something like taking out the rubbish that he can do whenever he wants. So I find that really disappointing, actually. And as we move forward, if we're just speaking about gender, the advice that I give to senior executives now is that if you want to do something about that, you have to treat having a family as something that both men and women do, 
And you have to put as much focus on paternity leave as maternity leave. And I'm not a gender expert, as you know, but my colleagues who are all say that that's one of the most important interventions is, is paternity leave. Another human factor which you discuss in your book is demographic shifts, demographic aging, which will obviously on a slower time scale influence the future of work. You talk about very young nations and very aging nations that we can learn from. Are there any hints from Japan as to how we incorporate this, this factor of the, the demographics of aging into the design of work? Well, you know, Andrew Scott and I, Andrew is a colleague of mine at London Business School. He's an economist. I'm a psychologist. We wrote two books about this, The Hundred Year Life and The New Long Life. And what we tried to do there was to really show that these demographic trends, both in terms of people living longer, but also in terms of some societies such as Japan and China aging very, very rapidly compared to others, we thought this was an important topic of conversation that senior executives, and in in fact, all of us should be thinking about. And the book went on to sell a million copies. So lots of people did think about that. Where is that with regard to the pandemic? Again, honestly, some disappointments here, Martin. You perhaps know again that the number of people coming back to work after the pandemic, the group that isn't coming back to anything like the proportions we'd expected is the over 55s. So even though Andrew and I had spoken very convincingly, I think, about the needs for people to be employed into their 70s, the truth is that many people, for a a range of reasons, have decided not to return to the workforce. And I find that extremely concerning. And certainly, if I look at where I'm putting my own energy at the moment, I'm putting quite a bit of my energy into trying with a group of other people to do something about that. Because I think the long-term prognosis for people who've come out of the workforce in their mid-50s without the sort of savings that you would have as as a BCG partner and then live on to 90, that's a very, very tricky period of time, both with regard to tangible assets, how much money they've got, but also intangible assets. So I think that's a worrying sign. So changing gear slightly, you've got a very interesting uh, framework in the book around what you call productivity modes, energy, focus, coordination, collaboration. The idea being that the circumstances you need or the type of work, the framing of the work depends upon what is required to make the work successful. Could you explain that idea a little bit to us? One of the things that happened at the beginning of the pandemic is lots of us started by the question, what is it I want? And I felt that that wasn't the right starting question. I thought the right starting question was, how do I become more productive? Because in the end, any redesign is going to be measured on that fundamentally. So then we have to ask ourselves, well, what is it that we do and how could we be more productive in those activities? And the four that you've described, energy, focus, coordination, cooperation, each have very different circumstances about time and place for them to be, you know, as productive as possible. For example, I work with architectural practices. Some of their jobs are very creative. It requires high levels of cooperation with people working on design and so on. That's one of the reasons why you'll see many architectural practices bringing everybody back to the office. And you'll see a lot of focus on what the office looks like and making it so that it's irresistible. I'm going to one of the big offices tomorrow, and I'm sure I will find it completely irresistible because their view is that that requires face-to-face work. But then, you know, there's other work that one of the investment analyst companies have said, well, actually, our work is a lot about focus and coordination. 
We don't need to be in an office very much to do that. In fact, we actually know that when analysts come into the office, they get interrupted a lot. So productivity actually went up when people work from home. And then there's some work, particularly coordination work, where people are saying, we don't need to be synchronized all the time. And I think the issue about eight hours of Zoom, which many of us are now experiencing, I think that's a massive challenge and a problem. And we have to be much more intentional about the way that we redesign work so that we don't have eight hours of Zoom. Because quite a lot of work you do when you're coordinated, you actually don't need a Zoom to do it on. You could actually do it and send it you know, in a workflow, a project, a technology, Slack or something. So I think we have to be a much more thoughtful. But actually thinking about the elements of work, I think is a really good start. Yeah, the thought it triggered for me was that, reflecting my own job, is that actually my job is not one of those things. It's, it's all of those things at different moments. And therefore, I found myself asking what we can do to, to help people with the, the self-awareness and the self-deployment and, and the transitions between those different modes. So I guess you've already given one of them, which is, you know, do not do wall-to-wall Zoom. You know, have some variation in the formula, but how, how can we empower people to, to make the right transitions? I think that's a good question. So I think for all of us, we do all of those. And certainly in my job, I do all of those. But I think that the real challenges right now are focus and cooperation. Focus is something that you do, we do. It's place agnostic. But the most important thing is that you don't get disturbed. And so I'm suggesting to people, and I do in the book, a whole range of techniques to make sure you don't get disturbed for three or four hours. I was talking to a journalist about it last week, and she said, oh, do you mean administrative time? And I said, no, I mean time actually to focus. This is what humans do. If you want humans to be better than a machine, you better give them time to focus. So acknowledging that for lots of us, focus when we're on our own, working through a problem, reading, maybe making notes, that's a really important part of our work. So giving yourself time to do that, either at home or in the office or a, a co-work or a coffee shop, whatever it is, the most important thing for focus is that you're A, synchronized, you're disconnected from other people. And then the most important thing about cooperation is you're with other people. So I think getting that balance right is where quite a lot of people are right now. We're still in play. I, I don't know any company that can honestly say, you know, game over, we, we've sorted this out. I've been talking to a few this morning and a lot of still anxiety, but also excitement about what is possible and, and how you focus on these multiple elements. One thing that caught my eye in the book was your stress on part of the redesign or the implementation of the redesign is the importance of narrative, uh, leadership narrative. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. I think there's three groups that are going to be really important for the redesign of work. Leaders in terms of their narrative and role modeling, uh, line managers in terms of the way they, they work and build accountabilities within team, and then the employees themselves. But leaders' narratives are really important, and that's the sort of storytelling. What we know is that the human brain is very attracted to stories and not particularly attracted to data. Now, Martin, I'm sure that your brain is very attracted to data, but you're probably unusual. Most people are very attracted to stories. So the way that the leader sort of shows up and talks about themselves and talks about the journey that they've been through and how they see the purpose of the organization developing and what it means for people within it, those narratives are so important 
right now. And I think actually many leaders became much more adept at being storytellers because rather than standing in front of a town hall with, you know, 600 people and you've got your suit on, you're sitting at home talking into a platform, a Zoom or whatever platform where you don't realize you're necessarily speaking to 6,000 people. So I think the introverted leader of whom there are quite a lot actually rather enjoyed the fact that they were now at home in a much more informal way and could really talk to employees in stories. So I, I think that our capacity to be storytellers has increased during this period of time. Let's uh, finish up because our time is nearly up, Linda, with a few personal questions, if I may. How has your own work been shaped by the pandemic? And how will you be making your work choices differently in the context of academic institutions like London Business School? Well, actually, I've never worked harder as I did during the pandemic. And that was partly because I realized on March the 24th that whatever was going to happen was absolutely sitting at the heart of everything that I'd been researching. So I kept a journal. It's now on its 13th, my 13th journal. I wrote a lot. I did a lot of webinars and things. And I just worked harder than I've ever done. You know, I wrote that redesigning work was the fastest book I've ever written. And indeed for Penguin, who published it in the UK and around the world, and indeed for MIT, it's the fastest book they've ever published. And I worked so hard because I had a feeling that about now people would be starting to say, we have to redesign work. And I wanted that book to be in their hands whilst they went about that. So I've never worked harder. As soon as the pandemic finished, I started traveling. So since the pandemic finished, I've been in Tanzania, I've been down the Nile, I've been to St. Lucia, I'm just go. I cannot wait to do what I love, which is travel the world. And of course, in terms of London Business School, we, we embraced hybrid. I don't know how long it will last for, but the last time I taught my future of work elective, it was a hybrid Zoomers and Rumors, half of them in the room and half of them on Zoom. Was it easy? No, but it, we did it and we got good feedback. So I think we've all learned some new skills along the way, but I'm, I'm desperate to travel. And just to give you an example of that, I wrote the HBR article about managers with Diana Gerson. Diana and I have never met, never met. So we're actually meeting each other in June in France. So a lot of excitement about actually meeting people who have been really important to you during the pandemic. Yes, a lot of that resonates, including the, the working very hard point. I mean, I found that one of the uh, key skills that I've needed to develop is self-pacing because I can be infinitely more productive without all of the travel time, you know, whether I should be all of the time and, and how I pace myself. Because I guess the, uh, the virtual world doesn't have the normal boundary markers that say it's time to stop. You know, any, any thoughts on that topic? I think you're absolutely right. I, I can't even begin to tell you what my day has been like. You know, it's, it's now what, half past four. I started at half past seven in a Tokyo broadcasting thing. I've done four presentations. I'm about to go into London to do a studio. Pre I mean, and I think what's been really difficult, Martin, is that generally in pre-pandemic, you actually traveled places and that gave you time but now it's just completely back to back and you switch off one Zoom and you switch on, on the other. So it has been really, really, really productive. What I do, I'm not doing it right now because I'm getting my book off the ground. The poor, I'm trying to get the poor little thing onto its feet and at least toddling along before I abandon it, is I do take at least one day a week off where I don't have any Zooms. And if I don't do that, I find myself 
pretty wretched, actually. Yes. I mean, my, my strategy was I, I took up piano again. Oh, um, that's nice. Deliberately, because it can absorb large amounts of time, because I, I needed a, way of, a pleasurable way of switching off. Yeah. Well, I switch off by walking. So this is, we were speaking about our great friend, Herminia Barra. Herminia and I walked every single day during lockdown, and we still, we still walk a lot. So whatever you do, you've got to do it, because I can promise you that your assistant, our assistant, would love to fill every single moment of your day. And it's only you that can stop them from doing that. Well, it's been fascinating, Linda. Thanks for sharing your ideas with us. Thank you, Martin. If you've liked the conversation, uh, make sure you're subscribed to the Thinkers and Ideas podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. As always, we welcome feedback. And next time, we'll be joined by the uh, thinker and strategist, Roger Martin, where we'll discuss his new book, A New Way to Think. But we've been discussing today Linda's new book, Redesigning Work, How to Transform Your Organization and Make Hybrid Work for Everybody, which is already out in the UK and out in May in the US. So thanks again, Linda. Thank you. Thank you, Martin.